so Art Sunday, but what we're doing is really finishing off a series in James uh, chapter 3. And uh, I want to kind of frame this by talking just about uh, the human person and how we work um, because that'll, that'll kind of show us where we're going with this whole thing. But uh, human, human people, humans, us, uh, we have what's called lower, lower order thinking and kind of higher order. And lower order is basically the animal side of us. It's not as much the image of God side of us, but it's basically inclinations, desires, wants, wishes, kind of what those things are that pull at us down here in the gut. Um, higher order are spiritual and they're rational um, and they're a bit different. But we can, we can frame out the lower, lower order by just looking at what we see on commercials and things like that. So there's a picture of a Whopper. There, that's, uh, that's aimed at lower order thinking, right? I can't, I, I didn't have the ability to find a video where it would be like sizzling, um, flame broiled, and, and uh, if you go buy a Burger King, they'll try and get the smells into it. They have, uh, I swear it's just pellets that they burn and have a chimney, you know, to try and kind of lure you in that way. But we all know when we watch TV that, that they're really trying to hit at things to where you didn't know you were hungry and then all of a sudden you're thinking, you know, I really should go get a burger, you know, and, and so they're aiming at that side of you. Maybe this is a bit of a cliche one, but I've got a picture. This thing kind of hits at me. Um, this is Bora Bora. And it's, to me, it's just as powerful. It's like I, I know there's some kind of filter on that picture, and somehow they, they made everybody, like, stand behind the photographer. There's probably all sorts of screaming kids behind the photographer. Um, but when you're looking at this, you're like, wow, this, the lagoon huts and the sunset, and it's peaceful. And if, if you've got um, kids between the ages of 5 and 12 like me, you look at this, and, and it just sucks you in. I will mortgage my future, my kids' future. They don't need to go to college, um, but I need to go to Bora Bora, right? So I want to illustrate it a little bit more powerfully, and, and you have to do audience participation with me. I'm not good at this. So, like, if I was sitting where you are, I wouldn't really do this well because I don't, I don't do what people tell me well. But I need you to do this with me, otherwise it won't make sense. So um, I'll show the next picture. These are napkins. Um, I want you to picture, so, so you're going to visualize something with me. I want you, and you can close, it's best if you close your eyes, but I want you to picture grabbing a handful of napkins and, and blotting your tongue with them, drying off your tongue. I know that's a, I know that, I, just go with me here. Okay, so you're, you're closing your eyes, you're picturing grabbing a handful of napkins and it's just that nasty drying off your tongue um, kind of feeling. And now I want you, there's a picture if it helps, but you can keep your eyes closed. I want you to imagine taking a peeled lemon and I want you to just bite into it. Half a lemon, I want you to just visualize with that dry tongue now all of a sudden biting into a lemon, biting down on it and all of that sour juice just explodes in your mouth. Can, can you picture that? Raise your hand if your salivary glands kicked in. Okay, there's, there's a, a lower order human response, inputs and outputs, that we can, we can literally, Pavlov's dog, kind of, kind of illustrate. 
And much of what we deal with in life is trying to steer us according to those lower order kind of things, marketing to us, selling to us, trying to convince or persuade us. And, and we naturally, like water trying to find its way down, we naturally tend to operate that way. You don't have to convince somebody to, to pursue their kind of wants or wishes. Here's the interesting thing about much of the New Testament. Much of the New Testament gives us uh, a picture of life and, and tries to call us to a, a kind of living that is very different than a whopper on a screen. It's, it's choosing to do this even though there might be a lot of hardship or difficulty or challenge in doing it because it's the right thing, because ultimately long term it's better. But you have to lean into it, you have to commit to it, because it's not lower order, it's higher order. And that's what we kind of see going on here in James. So I want to pick up just what we read last week, and then we're going to read the verse we're camping on this week. And James kind of says this higher order of wisdom, wisdom that comes from above, wisdom that really resonates with the image of God in us, not, not the lower order. It's first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And then in chapter 3 of, of James, verse 18, it says this, Peacemakers who sow in peace raised a harvest of righteousness, which is the same Greek word as justice, righteousness, justice. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Now what does that really mean? Um, peacemakers is an interesting phrase. Actually, in James here, peacemakers is, is not a noun. It, there is a noun form of, of this word, peacemakers. It shows up in the Beatitudes. Um, but this isn't the noun form of it. This is actually combining a verb of making peace. The ones who make peace. The verb being to make, to do, to craft. Um, peace being the noun, the, the, the object that's being created. So it's kind of an interesting thing here, the way it's rendered in our English Bible, at least in the NIV. It puts it in a noun form, um, but actually in James, it's written um, as the ones that are making peace. Now what does it mean to make peace? We're being called here to do something, to choose something, to choose a way that's not naturally kind of what we would be inclined to do. Um, and I think we're a little bit thrown off by this phrase, peacemakers, because it sounds a lot like peacekeepers. Um, it sounds a lot like peace. And when we think of peace or peacekeepers or keeping the peace, we tend to think in terms of geo, uh, geopolitics. Does that make sense? Is that fair? Um, I don't know, because I just gave them these pictures literally 20, I don't know, not 20, it was actually five minutes ago. So they may not have them for the screen. Um, I was getting creative side stage and texted them to them. So I don't know if we, we don't have these pictures. Can you put them in just maybe so I can show them later because they're cool pictures? Um, but uh, anyone ever heard of Banksy? You heard of Banksy? Banksy's a, a basically a graffiti artist that's really rich. Um, he's, a, he's a professional graffiti artist that was really smart at like creating this cult following. Like he'll go into areas and he'll plan it for a, a whole long time. He'll plan, just tell me somehow when you get them up. Um, 
however, but so he'll, so he'll plan to go into an area and basically at night run through and create these, uh, these masterpieces of satire, of irony, of everything else, um, graffitied onto buildings and everywhere else. So London, uh, Bethlehem, he tried to do it in New York, I think they caught him, but different big cities around the world. Uh, and he'll have, it, he'll have it sketched out what he's going to do. He'll have prepped it. He'll have a team waiting for him on the ground. But you never catch him. You never know he's going to be there. And then poof, he's gone. And it's kind of this, again, this kind of really big cult following thing. And they're worth a lot. Like if, if you get a Banksy on your building, that's like worth a lot. There's whole books of all of this graffiti art that he's done. Um, and it's really kind of powerful thing. When I was in Bethlehem, uh, which is, you know, I mean, it's the site of a lot of tensions. A wall was put up during the Second Intifada to try and curb bus bombings and, and the like, and, and it did. Um, in a lot of ways, uh, that helped. But now you've got this tension where literally Bethlehem is, is walled by a wall bigger than what would have been in, in Berlin back in the day. And so you're in this really interesting place where you've got this huge uh, concrete wall, and then you've got the church and the, the nativity um, and it's, it's a bit of a strange thing. And so they actually sell these nativity sets now where it's, you know, made out of wood, olive wood in, in uh, that area of the world. You know, everything's carved out of olive wood. And you'll have the nativity scene where Jesus and manger and Joseph and Mary and kind of some animals. And, and the backdrop is the wall. You know, I mean, picture the Berlin Wall, but, but the variety of wall that's right around Jerusalem. And it's this unbelievable kind of like, wow, that really twists your mind, you know? So it's kind of this interesting thing. Do we have those pictures or no? We're still doing it? Let me know if you do. But I think um, I'll show them to you just in the middle of the sermon. Just we'll take an aside because they're fun to look at. Um, but I think we think uh, when, we, when we come to peacemakers, we naturally go to this kind of peace. Like, wow, there needs to be people that are peacemakers, people that are over there, diplomats, uh, other people on the ground, working for peace, laboring for peace, and that should really happen in the world. It should certainly happen in the Holy Land. Um, we should certainly figure out how to live with one another, and we think that way, and I think there's a problem with thinking that way because it's a really distant thought. We, we've we take peacemaking and we make it something about other people or other places. And that's not at all what, what's being talked about here. What's being talked about here is literally this idea of, of bringing about harmony or goodness or unity or the way things ought to be in your sphere, in your circle, the relationships that you have on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's incredibly tough. All throughout the, the New Testament, Jesus is saying, listen, turn the other cheek. If someone really offends you that much, turn the other cheek and teach them the higher way. Overlook an offense. It's to your glory to overlook an offense. Um, bless those who curse you. And Paul will teach us it's actually like you'll, you'll make them feel so bad that it's like heaping burning coals on their head. And they're going to begin to like burn up in that. And they're not going to like that tension. They're not going to be able to hate you. And pretty soon it will be reconciled. Jesus talks about loving your enemies, praying for your enemies. So literally your enemies of today, we should be thinking of as our friends of tomorrow. If we really understood our theology, our enemies of today, 
we should be thinking of or praying about them as if they're our friends of tomorrow. And so Jesus is talking about this kind of love, this kind of love that's like take the person that offends you the most, the person you're having the greatest difficulty with, the person who doesn't deserve that you would go to them and try and reconcile it, that even if you're not the one at fault and you realize someone else has an offense against you, that you would drop your sacrifice at the altar, says Jesus, and you would go to that person and say, hey, we need to talk. I think you might have misunderstood me. I think there's a problem here. I certainly don't intend for our relationship to be strained this way. How can we work this through? And then go back to where you're going to talk to God. And, And God is basically saying, I'd rather you go fix that to the best of your ability before you come to me and say, uh, I want to sit in this relationship and hear what you have for me next. In other words, half the time we pray, the first thing God would tell us is, take a time out, go reconcile your relationships, and then come back after the intermission and we'll talk about what's next. But we can't get to that part if you're not willing to first stop and go and make peace with your brother, with your sister, the person um, that you really don't want to talk to. And that's hard. And I don't think we do that well in society. I really don't think we do. I've been blessed this week by a couple of instances of people I know that have, that have taken that higher road and gone back and communicated into situations and tried to work on them or fix them. And I think when you see that, you celebrate it and you go, this is something so powerful. How come we're not going to do this more? How come we can't call each other to do this more? We entertain each other's problems about other people, but we're not in the habit of pushing back and saying, have you gone to them yet? Have you gone and asked if you understood it wrong? Have you gone and asked if you heard it wrong? Have you tried to figure out what their perspective is rather than coming to me and offloading all of your frustration? We're not trained in our society to do that. And we've got to make peace. And we've got to seek to do that. And what we're, what we're really finding here is this is not about Palestine or, or Israel it's about your family, your coworkers, your friends, the people that you're stewing on. And, and James is saying that when we make, if we're the ones who make peace that way, that somehow all righteousness or the fruit of righteousness and goodness grows up in that garden. That when we take the initiative and we sow those seeds and we, we do that work and we do that labor, what we're doing about, uh, we're basically investing into creating the set of circumstances we all desire in our life where there's harmony and beauty and goodness. Peacemaking is an art form. Um, if we were to label it and say what kind of art it is, um, it would be reclamation art. Uh, Jason Waldron, who's here this morning, um, I, I have some pictures of his to show just because he does this professionally. It's, it's a really cool thing. You can see him at different galleries around town. But Jason takes uh, a juniper wood for a lot of his art. And what, what would be sitting there or would be cast off from a tree or we would see as common, Jason finds this stuff and pulls it together and he sees the possibility. And he brings it together and creates art, reclamation art. He reclaims it and redeems it and turns it into something beautiful. Let's camp on this one for just a second. This is uh, the Justice Conference brand. He created this. It's in the wall, uh, in the hallway at the Antioch offices, but he's got a big chain um, that he reused, and then wood and a whole lot of different elements to create that. And so peacemaking, um, we can show, I think there's one more. Um, 
Peacemaking is basically an art form where we're saying, as I walk through life, instead of seeing the bad, instead of letting the bad make me burn, instead of feeling justified in punishing those who deserve to be punished because they're bad or they've, they've mistreated me or um, they're offending me in some kind of a way, instead of always reacting at the lower level, the natural like kind of animal instinct, what we're called to is to be artists at a higher level. That when we walk through, instead of reacting, we see possibility. Jesus died for these people. God loves these people. These people are a part of God's creation that was meant to be good and that can be good again. Just like I'm not thrown away, but God is renewing and remaking me. If I can be made better, and if my situations can be, better, uh, be made better with forgiveness, then certainly other people in other situations can be, uh, be made better with forgiveness as well. And so as I'm going through and seeing what's happening in life, I realize in that moment right there, if I put a little grease in, if I just massage something into that bad situation, it can be fixed. Something good can grow out of that. If I, if I make something in there, if I sow something into there, it will bring a harvest of good into my life, into their life, and ultimately into the community life in such a way that when you begin to put enough of us together, we shine because it's different. It's different because we've chosen a different, more difficult way, and you can't expect people that don't know forgiveness and don't know grace to choose that routinely. And so wherever you have a whole lot of other people that don't know that grace or forgiveness, you're not going to see the same kind of light. We're called out of darkness and we're called into light to be the light, to be the example, to be witnesses. And we have to reclaim this understanding of peacemaking, forgiveness, love, grace, and we think it's all about us and God and it's corporate. It's corporate. So when Jesus tries to tell this story, he tells a parable. He says there was a guy that owed the king a lot of money. And he came to him and said, and listen to the, the phraseology here. The man comes to the king and says, be patient with me so that I can repay my debts. I'm not asking you to forgive my debts. Just be patient with me so that I can somehow do good enough to pay you back. And the king has compassion and has mercy on him and actually forgives the debts and says, just don't worry about it. I don't want you to have to live like that. Let me just forgive your debts. Start over. It's the year of Jubilee. And so this guy, I mean, can you imagine how amazing that is? This guy gets excited, goes out. And I've been here before where you're in debt one moment and you're, you're like, oh, if I could just be set free from that and start over, like, oh, how I would do things so differently in life and whatever, you know. And then all of a sudden you get a check you didn't know was coming and you're like, oh my gosh, I so need some things right now. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like your, your mood shifts, your mind shifts. And so here's this guy saying, we just... I just give me patience. Can't we work something out? There, there's got to be a way for everything to kind of harmonize and get together. And then he gets forgiven. And he's like the guy that, that was like, I was going to get myself out of debt. And then I get this check. He's like that guy. He forgets that. And he goes out and says, wow, I used to think I was in debt. Now I'm like all the way at, at even. If I call in some of my, um, my 
some, some of the people that owe money to me, if I call that in, um, my debtors, if I, if I call that in, I would actually have a lot of money um, because I'm starting at zero now. So what looked like very little, they owed me a little, little bit of money compared to my big debt. But now that I don't have my big debt, this little bit of money that people owe me looks like a lot. Let me go call all that in and I'll actually be pretty well off. Like, this is really cool. I'm excited again. I mean, can you imagine that? Like, that's, I can see myself doing that. And so he calls these people in and says, give me, give me the money you owe me. And they say, well, we don't have it. Have mercy on us. Be patient with us. And he gets irate with them. And he calls the magistrate. And he has them thrown into debtor's prison. You owe me money. You can't pay it. I'm going to call that in literally in your flesh. I'm going to put you in prison. Um, and so eventually the king hears this. And can you imagine the king hearing about this? And then and you little twerp. You know, like, I mean, just that frustration that you would have as a king. Like, or if you forgived one kid and then they go and mistreat another kid. Like, how angry that would just make you. So the king calls this guy in and says, I forgave your debt. Although it was large. And yet you've treated this person that owed you a small sum of money. You've treated them harshly. And because of that. I am now going to call in all of what you owe me and I'm going to basically grind you up. And then Jesus says, so too will my father treat you harshly if though you've been forgiven much, you don't forgive others. So picture it, like we owe a debt to God. Like God, just give me enough chances. I mean, every day I start the day thinking I can do better. I, I never quite finished the day that way, but just give me a new shot tomorrow or next week. I mean, eventually I'm going to get it right. I mean, we kind of feel that way, don't we? Like, God, just be patient with me long enough. I'm going to get there. I'm going to get it right. Um, but we never really will, and God knows that. So God says, listen, you don't have to pay me back. You don't have to be perfect. I'm going to forgive you the way you are, accept you the way you are, give you my grace so that you can stand next to me righteous. Let's forget about it. I love you. You don't have to be perfect for me to love you. Um, And God forgives us completely. And then we go out as people redeemed and forgiven with a clear conscience that can pray to God and enjoy all of that. And we go out and we see other people and we see their behavior. That's where it usually gets us. Like, really? That behavior? I would never do that behavior. Of course, we don't think about behaviors we have that they wouldn't do but we we fixate on the things we're usually good at and and other people are bad at I would never treat someone that way I would never say that I would never go to that movie I would never whatever behaviors we think we can judge other people with we usually judge their behavior don't even see their heart but we begin to punish them and they deserve everything they're going to get if I talk bad about them if I gossip about them if I slander them they deserve it why? Because they, they did this. There's a debt they owe. And all I'm doing is rendering to them what is due to them because they've behaved so poorly. They've sinned so greatly. They've offended me so much. Therefore, they, they, they deserve what they're going to get. We do this, don't we? And so Jesus is saying, if you do that, God's going to treat you really harshly. That somehow we have to understand the depth of forgiveness that it would just transform us like Jesus with the woman that came in and anointed his feet and, and cried tears there and wiped it up with her hair. And the, the Pharisee said, 
If you only knew what kind of woman that was, her behavior. And Jesus says, um, I came into your house, you didn't do anything for me. Yet this woman that you're so offended against came in and look at the way she's treated me and honored me. And he says, who do you think loves much? The one who's been forgiven little or been forgiven a lot? And the Pharisee, judging correctly, says the one probably being forgiven a lot loves much. And Jesus says, yeah, that's right. She's been forgiven a lot. She knows it. And so she has a lot of love for me. And Jesus is saying, love like that. Understand that. Move out into community that way. Look at your family that way. Look at people younger than you that way. Look at people older than you that way. Look at the person that treated you poorly in business and realize you've probably treated somebody poorly in business as well and go to it right away, not tomorrow, today. And you go to it and you say, I think I might have offended you or I'm being convicted this way. Can I explain myself to you? Would you forgive me? Or go to them and say, I feel like you might have misunderstood me. I certainly don't mean it this way. Did you take it that way? Or say, listen, you've offended me. And I, I, you might not know it, but let me just explain to you how this has come across to me. And if, if I'm understanding it wrong, please correct me. But somehow, some way, we've got to build the discipline of the habit of choosing the higher order and not thinking that spirituality is going to come or goodness is going to come or the fruit of righteousness is going to come by just the easy way or the natural way as we move through life. It doesn't work that way. So Jesus says we're the ones that choose to make peace. And we're going out literally sowing and investing. And are we doing it where it's easy? No. Our neighbor isn't our affinity group. That's what Jesus had to teach the Pharisees. Our neighbor literally um, is, is anyone in our sphere that we run into that, that we could love if we were just willing to choose to be artists that way. And so we go out and, and we sow peace and unity and redemption and grace and love and forgiveness into all the little tough cracks that are out there. And we do it diligently and, and we work hard at it and we do it quickly so that we don't allow opportunity for bitter roots to grow up into those cracks. Because we know that's where the weeds come out. Um, if you've got a crack, I, I mean, down in LA, it happened a lot more than up here. I don't know why that is. I'm sure there's someone here that can talk to me about the foliage or weeds of Central Oregon, but I don't have them coming up in my driveway, but they did other places I lived. And so the cracks, and we, we go into that and we go into that quickly. That's what we're called to. And the life you want, the life you would choose for yourself, the blessings that would come to you accrue as we do this work. As we take the common things in life and we put our hands on it and begin to mold and to shape it, the things we choose uh, that we really think we would want in life, a good name, friendship, people to speak well of us, character, the ability to sleep at night knowing that, that we're the kind of person um, that, that we've always wanted to be, that we feel good because of the way we're treating people. Half the time we're going to find that we misunderstood things and we're going to realize, wow, there's a whole lot of wasted life that could have been um, spent right there. I mean, I could have gone on and on and, and been bitter about this and talked about it and slandered people, all this over a misunderstanding. And so we begin to become those kinds of people. And Jesus is our example this way. Jesus chose the higher way rather than the lower way. 
He was the ultimate peacemaker. When he came, it was declared that peace is now coming to earth because of Jesus. And nothing illustrates this to me more than the story of Jesus and Judas. And so what you see is something really interesting in the back of John. Um, I'll just read parts of it. Uh, You can turn there if you want with me. John chapter 13, Jesus is predicting his betrayal. Uh, So John chapter 13 And we'll start reading in verse 21. It says this, After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. And his disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. So picture it. You've got the disciples sitting around, um, probably uh, not like Da Vinci, uh, Da Vinci's Last Supper, but probably a little bit more in a square or a circle. And they're looking around at each other like, do you know what he's talking about? Um, I don't know what he's talking about. Do you know who it is? Who is it? Is it one of us in this room or is it like some kind of a follower in the, like the bigger crowd? Um, not one of the 12. Like, but what's going on? So can you literally see them going, what do you mean betray? Like you're the son of God. Like this isn't the way it's supposed to end. We, we just came into town and there was all these people cheering us on. Like what do you mean? And so they're, they're looking at each other. And it says elsewhere in scripture that Jesus knew all along who would betray him. And Jesus knew the hearts of man and Jesus knew all of these things implying and saying specifically that Jesus always knew who Judas was. Always knew what uh, Judas was capable of and what he ultimately was going to do. He knew that this was in the, in the cards. That, you're not supposed to say that phrase in church. Um, this, was, uh, this was what was, he was called to. Okay. So here's, here's my point. I don't know about you. I feel like I've been betrayed a couple times in the last few years. And I usually knew who it was by and, and, or that it was coming or I expected it. And if you took some of my good friends and said, who does Ken think he's going to be betrayed by? I guarantee you they would list off two or three names and they'd probably be right. Do you know what I mean by that? If you know somebody's out to get you and that they're going to probably um, cash you in Literally, cash you in. Judas cashed Jesus in for cash. And, and you know they're probably going to cash you in the chance they, they get. Um, do you hold on to that? Or do you usually, when you're with your closest friends, give it away? I, I, I give it away. I think I, I mean, I know I give it away. I don't know about you, but I give it away. And... And so this, this passage in Scripture is really interesting to me because I think there's a lot hidden in the details of Scripture. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this, but I love the back of the book of John when Jesus comes back um, after he, he's raised from the dead and he's on the shore and they're out trying to fish and they've fished and fished, can't catch any fish and Jesus says, throw your nets here and they bring in fish and they hang out with Jesus and then Jesus leaves and, and it says that they had this miraculous, like this amazing catch, um, 153 fish like, and that goes on, you know. Like, it was such a great number, 153. And we, you know, and John just keeps on writing. And if you think about it, John's 70, 80, 90, or, uh, 90 years old when he's writing this gospel. I mean, think about it. So this has been 60 years since the events happened. If you're telling a story that happened 60 years ago about a bunch of fish that you caught, like if you're telling football stories from 60 years ago, 
and no one can can tell you that you're wrong. You know, so one touchdown turns into five, and you know what I'm talking about? Um, you don't say 153. You say, like, it was like 200 or 160 or 155, but you don't say 153. And unless for 60 years at every campfire, everywhere you've ever been, when people are saying, tell me the stories about Jesus, you are telling the story over and over and over again. And you're telling it and telling them, we brought these fish in and there was 153. How do you know there was 153? Because we counted them. What do you mean you counted them? Yep, the minute Jesus left, we dove into the pile. Um, Peter thought there was like 300. Uh, Thomas thought it was like 60 or 70. Um, but the rest of us, we were counting. It was 153 fish. It's 153. So for 60 years, John, I, I mean, this is the way I see it. I remember reading this when I was reading through the Bible for the first time. I'm like, that's, that's a mark of truth to me. There's something, it's a confidence builder for me in Scripture. And so I read this one and I'm like, none of the disciples knew who it was. I see something of Jesus' character in this. Because he knew all along that Judas was going to betray him. Yet he didn't treat Judas any differently than the other disciples. He didn't treat him in any kind of a way that would have given Peter, who's probably pretty perceptive, or Andrew, who's very good and would have picked up on it, or, or whatever it is, like Nathaniel. Like, he didn't treat Judas any differently, such that when he says, I'm going to be betrayed, they, they all go, yeah, we saw that coming. We know exactly who that's going to be. They don't know. They look around. They try and figure it out. Jesus chose a higher way. He, he chose to see the potential or to accept the messes the way they were and not let the inputs dictate his output. What he knew of Judas wasn't going to dictate how he treated Judas. Do you guys understand that? There's something really deep about the example we get with Jesus in choosing a higher spiritual kind of way. So where am I? Uh, by the way, do we have those pictures? No, we're not going to have them. Okay. Um, look up Banksy on uh, Google. Banksy uh, West Bank. And you'll see a really cool picture of a little five-year-old girl frisking um, some Israeli soldiers, you know, as they're standing against a wall. But then there's this really interesting one of... Um, a Palestinian youth, you know the quintessential picture with the bandana throwing a rock, again, from the second intifada. Um, and it's a picture of that Palestinian youth uh, throwing the rock, straining with everything, but it's a bouquet of flowers in the hand. Um, fascinating art. Art says something powerful about all this peace stuff, doesn't it? Um, so uh, Jesus has given us this example of choosing the higher order he says in Matthew chapter 5, um, as part of the Beatitudes, that this is the way we're supposed to be. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. By the way, this is the verb form. I'm sorry, the noun form. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. When we reflect the image of God in us, when we reflect our Father and his intentions for this world, it's because we're living out a certain kind of redemptive lifestyle that brings unity to everything 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called sons and daughters or children of God. And then it goes on and says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Don't retaliate. Be glad because your reward is great in heaven. Let God be our judge uh, and their judge. We don't have to treat them the way we think from a lower order they deserve. So we get all the way to Matthew chapter 6, and it's now the Lord's Prayer. And these disciples are saying, teach us how to pray. There's something different about you, Jesus. Teach us to emulate you. And Jesus says, here's how you should do it. You start this way. Our Father in heaven, holy, set apart, pure is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, only what we need. Let us not be driven by our appetites, but let us choose what is sufficient. And then it says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And so there's something about what Jesus is trying to teach us with forgiveness and how we're able to then go and forgive. You know, frankly, Jesus is the grounding of our ability to do this stuff. Second Corinthians says, we are compelled by his love. His love compels us forward. First uh, John chapter four says, we love because he first loved us. We forgive because we've been forgiven or as we've been forgiven. There's something really important to catch here about what drives everything spiritual in life. The higher order isn't us choosing to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. The higher order is because we're anchored in Christ and there's a life that flows into us and a power and an ability that flows into us to act spiritually and to begin to operate out of a higher level because of that new life we found in Christ. That's the anchor of everything in the New Testament, John 15, that if we are connected to Jesus, we will have the energy and the life that we need to be sanctified and redeemed and to be able to find the ability to do what we don't want to do or feel like doing because we experience grace and love and forgiveness. And love begets love and grace begets grace and forgiveness begets forgiveness. And we begin to realize only there are we gonna have the ability to walk out and live as witnesses of Christ. We don't live as witnesses of Christ simply by choosing to do it. We live as witnesses of Christ because we're anchored in Christ. Because we understand that we've been forgiven. And so that's where all of this is driving for me and where the picture comes in. I gave a sermon uh, in, in uh, Kampala, Uganda. And I'd never preached this sermon anywhere else. It was something that kind of came to me on the trip. But I got up and gave a sermon that said simply, asked the question simply, are we more like Peter or more like Judas? Are we more like Peter or are we more like Judas? And if you think about it, I think we all would tend to put ourselves in the Peter camp. Uh, I'm a little overzealous maybe. I don't always get it right. I maybe embarrass myself a little bit. But me and Jesus were tight. And I think we would naturally tend to write ourselves into the script that way. And I think we do that because we never really look at Judas from a human, uh, real-time perspective. Um, think about it. Judas is a category. We already have a category. If I ask you two plus two, you don't pull out your fingers and count. You already have a category for the answer. It's pre-programmed. You memorized it. Two plus two equals four. 
Judas is the most awful person who's ever, ever lived in the, in the history of the world and he deserves all the punishment that comes to him and he's cursed. Oh yeah, I'm like Judas. You know what I'm saying? Like we don't, we don't, we have a pre-programmed uh, response or category for who Judas is. And so we just don't think about the inner workings of what was going on with Judas. Here's the inner workings of what was going on with Judas. And let me, uh, let's just see if, if some of this story doesn't sound a little too close to home. So Judas signed on because there was a king and his name was, was Jesus and he was going to be the king of the Jews. And he was going to sit on David's throne and, and he was going to do mighty things in power. And so Judas is, is signed on to see where this thing is going to go. And, and he's given up a lot. And he's beginning, as time goes by, to have to make a decision between his elders. Now, if you're a Jewish person growing up in that culture, you're taught to respect your who? It's your religious duty to respect your elders. Not only that, but the, the, the people that are in spiritual authority, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, you are supposed to submit to these people. They have spiritual authority over you. And more and more as Judas is going along, he's having to choose to side with Jesus rather than the authorities. And that's a risky decision. You're, you're rejecting the, the, the authorities politically legally and spiritually in your life. And then as it goes by, these people that you've been rejecting the, the authority of begin to literally want to take the life of Jesus and possibly, um, by proxy, uh, that of his disciples. And so the stakes are getting higher and higher. And then Jesus goes and gets clinically depressed on everyone. And, and, it's, and he's not acting like large and in charge anymore. And it's like, whoa, Jesus I thought you were going to be really strong and you were going to like be a fighter. And now as it's getting closer to things, you're letting women pour perfume on your head and, and, and acting as if that's a good use of money. And you're, you're talking about dying and, and making a sacrifice in this humility stuff. And this is all going somewhere really bad. That's not what I signed on for. And what are the consequences of that? Jesus, if you go and give yourself up, it's going gonna, it's gonna to leave us vulnerable. Society's going to reject us, and I, didn't, I don't deserve this. I was choosing you from a noble spiritual inclination to try and be with a person of God, and, and you're going to leave us to be rejected by society as if we chose the wrong person? Not only that, but it's beginning to look more and more like if you're not going to do what I thought you were going to do, um, this is really awkward with the spiritual authorities in my life. How am I going to go back to them and find my place in society again if I rejected the authority of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes? Like, I'm going to be an outcast. And so, as I've thought about this, you know, I probably should submit to my my leaders. You know, that's what good Jewish boys do. You know, that's actually what I was taught growing up. That's in the law. It's in scripture. It's in the Bible that I would submit to those authorities. You know what? God would probably want me to go and, and tell these people what they want to know. They've got a, an arrest warrant out for Jesus. They're asking for information 
from anyone that can give it, I should probably go give them that information. You know, there's warrant for that. Like, there's, there's a case to be made for that. Uh, not only do I have permission to do that, but maybe I should do it. Maybe there's like a moral obligation that I go turn Jesus in. You know what? I should do that. And Judas, I can just picture it now. I can picture him feeling righteous in going to the leaders and telling them what they want to know and them looking at him and saying, you've made the right decision. That's a good Jewish young man. You chose what was right. You should be blessed for this. God is happy with you for this. And I can see Judas for at least a little while feeling like that was, that was good. It's a good decision. I'm glad I did that. We know obviously that when everything kind of goes down, he regrets it, second guesses it, and actually commits suicide. But every sin I've ever committed, there's always permission lurking, isn't there? Some kind of rationale, some kind of way of excusing it. Um, you know, I, I counsel a lot of couples um, or a lot of men in family crisis situations. And one of the most fascinating things I've ever seen is that every instance of adultery that I've seen in counseling a man, they'll quote scripture at me about David. Almost every time. A Christian guy that's committed adultery, I, I'm gonna hear about how David committed adultery, but he's a man after God's own heart. I, I'm gonna hear it. It's scripture. It excuses the behavior. It distances it. It doesn't accept responsibility. It, it's not really saying that the lower way of doing this is wrong and it's not okay. And somehow I have to turn from that and I have to find forgiveness and grace in admitting that I'm wrong and that in somehow that, that's gonna help me find the energy to live rightly. But so in counseling those situations, it's really interesting how you hear that. So there's something fascinating about Judas. And here's what it is. I think I'm more like Judas a lot of the time than I am like Peter. I think a lot of the time I go out and I betray my Lord and he knows it. And then I come to pray and I say, my Lord, um, let's talk about life and the things that I need from you. And Jesus looks at me and he breaks bread and he hands it to me and says, don't you understand, like symbolically, I'm offering myself to you. Don't you want this rather than the other? And I think sometimes I miss it. Jesus' body broken for me, Jesus' blood spilt for me. Sometimes I miss it. And I go out and I continue to betray Jesus and then I come back to prayer and the fascinating thing about Judas when he brings back the soldiers and Jesus is with his disciples. Jesus is a strong guy. He doesn't wait or hide behind a tree. He sees him at a distance and he gets up and says, okay, it's time. I like that about Jesus. I like that he's strong. So he walks up. What you guys here for? And Judas walks over and he does the ancient Near East greeting. So in the ancient Near East, you greet somebody with a kiss. 
That's, that's what you do. You go up and you kiss them. And so Judas had already arranged that the one that I greet, out of all those people, the one that I greet, that's the one. That's Jesus. And so he sees Jesus and the disciples and he goes straight to Jesus and he does ironically or hypocritically the, the gesture for a greeting that you would do for a friend and he kisses Jesus. And Jesus says to him, quote unquote, Judas, do you betray me with a kiss? Are you so lost in your thinking here that in betraying me, you're going to act like my friend. And I think sometimes when I'm betraying Christ or whatever it might be, it's funny because I can compartmentalize. Can, I mean, can you do that? I think we can do that. We can compartmentalize or excuse it away. It's not really betraying Christ. I'm being righteous. There's, there's warrant for this. There's permission for this somehow. And, oh, Jesus, we're still friends. What I'm doing is not really that bad. If you only knew how they treated me or how they talked about me to other people, then you'd understand that I'm not really betraying you by not forgiving them. I'm actually doing what's right. I've got warrant for this, Jesus. So let's leave that alone and oh, by the way, our church group is going to wherever. Hey, you're going to be really happy with me. I've started serving in the community. Or hey, I've got a great idea for loving on my family and my really good friends. Don't you, don't you see how loving I am that I'm loving the people that love me? It's going to be great. I just need you to give me some more money and then I can really ramp this whole thing up. And I'm going to sow so much love into that little group that there's just going to be this harvest of righteousness that's going to come. Can't you see my spirituality Jesus. Jesus is just like, you're, I don't even know, what are, you, I don't, what are you even saying at this point? Do you really betray me with a kiss? Do you really live hypocritically like that? Neglect what I'm saying? Sear your conscience against what you know you ought to do when it's difficult choosing the higher order rather than the lower order? And then you're going to come and you're going to talk to me with a kiss as we're friends as if you actually care about what I'm saying and what I want and what I died for. And so I want to, I'm on a lifelong quest to move from the Judas behavior in my life to more and more of understanding that there's forgiveness there, that there's grace there, that Jesus offers the bread to his betrayer if we would but take it. And that understanding that his body was broken for us and that we are grounded there and that we are then able to love because he first loved us. That his love compels us to move forward. That it's the billiard ball thing like an object in motion stays um, in motion. An object at rest stays at rest. That outside of that impulse of understanding redemption and salvation in Christ, the gospel, the good news, that even though I have Judas tendencies, I'm still able to be forgiven and to be called a child of God. That that impulse creates a body in motion such that I would be a peacemaker. One who actively makes peace. One who sows seeds of righteousness in the areas of discrepancy or tension or conflict or strife. Brothers and sisters, 
we are to be peacemakers. We're to be peacemakers. We were uh, cooking up a scheme. Um, Paul's been an artist for a few months. He's working on it. Um, uh, but we were going to create this. He had this crazy idea um, of creating glue in this picture that if we threw dust at it, would stick to it. Does that make sense? It would have turned into a big, ugly blob, and we couldn't figure out how to make it work. But we were going to have you cycle, if you chose to, up on the stage and then off the stage and, and literally touch dry paint chalk to throw on the board and to make the connection. I'm in the story. I'm not someone that just hears the story or looks at the story. I'm in the story. And I struggle with the higher and the lower. And I struggle each day to get it right and I don't always get it right. And I'm in the story, yet Jesus offers me bread. And Jesus is willing to die for my sins. And Jesus is willing not just to be patient with me, but to show me mercy, uh, mercy and cancel my debts. And, and we wanted you to viscerally be connected to that story this morning, that we could sit there and realize, Jesus, if you can't make me experience forgiveness, if I'm not willing to ask for forgiveness or even to see my sin, so that there's something going on there, then there's no hope for me to live out this Christian life. You chose to be spiritual. I'm supposed to follow you that way, and you've got to give an impulse to make this go. I've got to experience this. This has got to be good news in, in my soul. So I've got to be connected to it. And so you get to imagine that um, as we listen to the next special music. And Sally's going to do two songs. Um, and I would just ask that you would pray that peacemaking wouldn't be something uh, for peacekeepers or the UN or the government or something far and away, but that you would be willing to take the most difficult relationship in your life right now and be able to pray about it. That you'd take the greatest enemy in your life right now and say, God, could this person actually someday be a friend? I mean, what would that even look like? That would be amazing. That could only happen in the power of the Holy Spirit. You're going to have to do that work and provide that work to connect yourself to this story as Jesus, with the bread and with the cup, is willing to look at somebody and say, I, I had this offer for you. Can we connect to that story today? Amen. Uh, let me pray for us, and then Sally's going to lead us in song. Father, Open the eyes of our hearts. Pray that you would help us see clearly. Give us the humility that would be willing to accept our faults and our flaws, the parts we don't like to think about where we're not necessarily as good as we wish we were. Help us to understand those parts, how they influence our thinking and our actions. Help us to see how those parts need redemption. You're a reclamation artist you save things. You remake things. You make them new. Make us new this morning that we may be able to look at, at, at the messy parts and the messy relationships around us and with the eyes of an artist be able to breathe new life into them to be able to create and redeem and restore, to forgive, to show grace and to love. 
Make that thing come alive this morning in us. In Jesus' name, amen.